Hello and welcome to Switzer TV Investing. I'm Peter Switzer and it's hunting season. Yep, stocks are going to be on display with reporting season and it's a good time to hunt around for stocks that might be worth buying or selling. On tonight's show, we'll look at those stocks that you should watch over reporting season and it's just started the reporting season. The table on the screen now shows you the top quality companies that have big possible returns ahead if the analyst experts are right. I wrote this up on today's Switz report. The first 10 have smaller uh, promised returns, but they are better bets to return a nice windfall once a vaccine or successful treatment for the coronavirus comes to town. Have a look at some of those returns. Vicinity Centres, Centre Group, Horizon uh, Holdings at 22.7%, Sydney Airport 17.8%, Westpac 19.2%, NAB 20.4%, and Qantas 35.3%, Worley 39.4%. These are well-known quality names. Under pressure right now, if you're buying for the future, they have a lot of potential. Uh, now, let's go to the second grade group of um, companies. These are more risky. The returns are spectacularly higher, but they will have some troubles. We don't know whether companies like Webjet or Corporate Travel will survive these tough times. I suspect they will, but it's a bit of a gamble, and that's why their re promised returns, as judged by the analysts and experts, are so high. Nine Entertainment, a company under pressure with the uh, internet uh, bringing Netflix and Disney and Stan and all these other rivals to a free-to-air station. 41.4%. If they get their act together and they do well over the next couple of years, there could be a potential return there. And Star Entertainment Group, that's a, a, a gambling or a casino outfit, clearly missing the Chinese tourists. But will Chinese tourists be back in a year or so? If they are, that 34.8% might be... Uh, something you can pick up if you're prepared to take the risk and it is a risk and if you want to know more as i said check out the switzer report that's switzerreport.com.au and if you're not a subscriber you can take a free trial for x number of days also on the show pinpointing stocks to watch is adam doors from shore and partners and we have a very special interview with the CEO of Fortescue, Elizabeth Gaines. Ever since she joined the company, the share price has been heading in the right direction, and so has the bottom line. And Julia Lee from Berman Invest, while our own Paul Rickard tells us whether it's too late to make money out of Afterpay. That's the show ahead, so let's catch up with Julia Lee. Well, as always, we catch up with Julia Lee at the start of the program. Julia, good to see you. Great to see you. Uh, reporting season. This is excitement plus for a girl like you. What are you expecting <laughs> with reporting season? What are the, the key things you're looking for? Christmas for analysts, they <laughs> call it. Um, but unfortunately, it looks like there might be some nasty surprises yeah. this reporting season. First off, we are expecting to see a pretty bad earnings season. If you have a look at consensus for the Australian share market, expecting to see negative earnings growth of 15.5%. Some of the areas investors would be very familiar with, for example, transportation earnings is expected to be down 58%. Also, if you have a look at infrastructure, we know we haven't been using airports yeah. as well as toll roads. So that's expected to see earnings down about 62%. Cool. 
One bright area I think will be the resources area, given the iron ore price strength, as well as the production we've been seeing coming out of that space. But on the flip side, banks will see earnings decline by around about 30%. Mm. So it is going to be a drama field reporting season. Um, this week, of course, we hear from the likes of ResMed, uh, Nick Scarly, as well as Mervac. I think Nick Scarly will do mm. well, given that people have been spending in the home category, uh, being in lockdown. However, the outlook's also important. And today we saw the discretionary retailers sold off because non-essential retail will be closed over in Melbourne or is closed. And that's going to have an impact not only on uh, companies like Nick Scarly because you can't go to the showroom, mm. but also um, on discretionary retailers as well, whether it's Levisa, JB Hi-Fi, Harvey Norman, all, yeah. of, those, all yeah. of those will be closed. But Julia, let's just talk about what's you know, well-trained investors like you might be thinking, are you thinking then, you know, the market will sell off short term, why uh, would you be a potential buyer at some point of these on the basis that, well, after eight weeks, hopefully Melbourne will go back to at least stage three, and maybe by Christmas it could be stage two. What is your thinking, just for, for my viewers who aren't experts like you? Sure. I think the key here is um, I look at it on a short term, a medium term and a long term basis. And there are plenty of opportunities on a medium and long term basis. Mm. And I almost think of myself in two years time looking back at this mar market and thinking about what I wish I had bought. So there's um, I guess it changes my view from a risk perspective, um, not to be bogged down on the short-term implications, but looking more medium to long-term because COVID-19 won't be the dominating factor of markets um, over the next five to 10 years, although it is now. And every day we inch closer to a vaccine or treatments that, that are gonna help in this area. So I think it is a fight against time. At the moment, when you're deep in the trenches, it feels like lockdown will be the reality forever. And I really do feel for our Melbourne friends. But the reality is that in six weeks' time, the situation should be a lot better. Um, so look, at the moment, the banks are selling down very heavily. I think it is a negative environment for the banks, given that a six-week hard lockdown is going to make it more difficult for investment uh, businesses, uh, especially small and medium enterprises, as well as the job situation. So the banks as a derivative of the Australian economy, things aren't looking too crash hot there. Of course, the migration to online is once again going to speed up. And today we saw Kogan up by about 8%, Temple and Webster doing well in a sea of red, which was the consumer discretionary uh, retailers. So look, there's short term positioning in this market medium term and long term. And I guess going to into reporting season, it is all relative. Um, if the market expects a profit result of 100 million and you deliver 200 million, it's gonna be really happy. But if you deliver $20 million, even though it's double the profit from last year and was expecting 100 million, of course the shares are gonna fall. So it's important not just to look at the profit results, but also market expectations and what's priced in and also the outlook because the market is more worried about the future, the future than it is about the okay, past. Okay, do you want to share with us the companies that you think are going to do well and it might be worthwhile getting in before they report? 
Mm. <laughs> well, obviously, all the stocks in my portfolio. Yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> um, three that I really like in the portfolio at the moment that I think will outperform during the reporting season. Look, I think property is going to be a drama field area and a really tough area, especially those REITs with exposure to shopping centres. For example, vicinity centres, about 40% of its revenue comes from Victoria. So I think that will continue to be under pressure. We've also seen negative revaluations there um, for the June half of about 11%. But I think those negative revaluations are going to continually uh, be a theme. And then, of course, the office sector has been impacted as well. But stocks that I do like in that space, Goodman Group, still benefiting from that migration to online, and Chatterhall Wales, which we do own. So 14 and a half lease. And this is one of the few REITs that we've seen in the property sector seeing consensus upgrades. Um, most of the companies in this space are seeing downgrades at the moment. So we own Chatterhall Wales, but I think it will continually be a good one in that property space. Look, at the moment, you're seeing a lot of buying go into Coles as well as Woolworths. But in this type of environment, I think, you know, it's one of the smaller companies that could outperform, um, and that's Metcash. So we own a little bit in, in Metcash. And of course, as lockdowns take effect, people will be shopping local. So Metcash should be a winner there as well. And look, super retail, um, we think that the after parts market is very strong. We saw that in terms of uh, some of the results that have already come through. Um, and look, the the I guess the look through is positive on the stock that we don't own, which is ARB. But Super Retail, we already got a taste of what's to come. They sort of pre-announced their results last week and we saw a surge of about 10% in its shares and we hold that in the portfolio okay. as well. Now, Julia, today I wrote something in Switzer Report where I looked at some stocks that the analysts think have really big upside. And of course, these were uh, probably um, calculated before Victoria went into stage four lockdown. But I want to look at the, the more risky group. Because, you know, in, the, in one group, like for example, the banks have ANZ has 25% upside. I'm looking from the point of view of a, a longer term investor, like you were implying a moment ago. Well, in two years time, you say, well, why, why was that buyer? But I want to focus on the, the ones that have really big potential gains, but could be at risk. Like for example, Webjet, 43.8%, the analysts say. Flight Center, 24%. Corporate travel, wait for it, 67%. Uh, what do you think of those three companies? Are any of those companies the ones that you might say in two years' time, gee, I wish I'd bought them? Uh, certainly not on a short-term no. view. Um, and look, I think you can be picky around your timing because they are pretty volatile. I mean, looking at these type of stocks, they fell around about 6% in one session. So if you get the timing of it wrong, that could be 6% worth of capital that you lost if you bought in on Friday. So there's no rush to get into these. But once you do see an inflection point, um, you know, in two years' time, we, there's a concept called mean reversion. If you see activity levels return to pre-COVID-19, they're an absolute bargain. So look, choose your timing carefully. At the moment, the market's in the process of pricing in um, those stage four lockdowns and that travel will be on hold for another six weeks, especially corporate travel in terms of business travel from Sydney to Melbourne, um, which is a very profitable route. Um, so look, there's no rush to get in, but certainly there's an opportunity there if you are looking at a two to five year time. Okay, okay. I guess the, the last question I want to throw at you is this. If you look at the the market as we see it now, are you expecting the overall index to pull back uh, by a significant amount because of Victoria's lockdown? 
Oh, look, I think a, a pullback is pretty normal, but um, I think a pullback because of the lockdown will be an opportunity to get into the market. When I see pullbacks, the, the question I ask is, um, is the situation permanent or is it temporary? Yeah. Um, and the six-week lockdown is obviously temporary, which to me represents an opportunity. There will be longer-term impacts in terms of employment, in terms of solvency um, coming through, but these conditions won't last forever. So for longer-term investors, for me, it represents an opportunity. The second thing I'm watching here is stimulus coming through from both the state as well as the federal governments, and that could be a positive thing as well. Generally, when you start to see large sums of money helping to support, that tends to signal a bit of a turnaround in terms of, of the market. So, yes, you know, the worst economic situation that we've seen in decades. Um, but the question I guess investors have to ask themselves is, is this six-week lockdown going to last forever? And if it's not going to last forever, then, you know, when does the buying opportunity come through? So, look, in a couple of weeks' time, I'll be looking to pick up more stocks. Some sectors are more negative on. For example, the banks would probably be leaving them for the time being. If I was to choose one of the big four banks, I'd probably go with CBA because it is due to pay a dividend in August compared to the other three, which will pay in November. Um, but preferring something outside of the big four, more like a Macquarie, where I'm still pretty neutral on. I think of Macquarie as being the best house on the worst street in a falling market. Um, so a great business, but unfortunately not the right set of circumstances. Julia Lee from Birmingham Invest, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Pete. This episode was brought to you by WCM Investment Management, a California-based global equities manager with an outstanding long-term track record. This chart shows the significant outperformance of WCM's quality global growth strategy. Over the past one year, three years, five years, ten years, and since its inception. Investors can access the strategy via the ASX with their choice of an exchange-traded managed fund, WCMQ, or a listed investment company, WQG. Well, we're looking at the kinds of companies that might do well in reporting season. Some might not, but certainly keeping an eye on some companies, I think is a really good idea. And to do that, we're going to share some his thoughts, Adam um, Dawes from Shaw and Partners. Thanks for joining us, Adam. Thank you, Peter. How are you going today? Very good, mate. Now, the market has had a bit of a struggle. What's going on today? Yeah, there's a little bit of a struggle. The bank's probably leading us lower at the moment and then probably probably a little bit of reality setting in after Melbourne's now going into stage four. Mm. People are sort of somewhat second-guessing what is going to happen with this economy. So a little bit of the exuberance now starting to come out of this market. Uh, it kind of makes sense. Melbourne is a quarter of the economy and we don't know how bad it's going to be for the economy. It can't be positive and it kind of makes sense that companies that operate here are going to be affected. Yeah, agree, agree, and especially the banks. Yeah. They're, looking at, uh, they're looking at some horrible home loans, especially in Melbourne and, and the rest of Australia. Yeah, exactly right. And we all love our banks and uh, they're under pressure, help, helping you rescue the economy. Let's run through some companies you mentioned, mate, in a, in a note you sent to me. Uh, Fortescue and Rio, I'm actually interviewing uh, Elizabeth Gaines on the program. Hasn't she done a great job? Unbelievable. Did you see the debt profile for Fortescue? I think it's $300 million or that, that is owed. Like, I mean, that, that is no debt. I mean, you and I were talking on the TV a couple of years mm -hmm. ago, 
And these guys were looking down the barrel of a ridiculous amount of debt. Yeah. They have done such a fantastic job of paying that debt down and then giving then giving dividends back to shareholders. Yeah, it's just, it's just, I, I can remember a number like nine billion, but I'm, I might be wrong, yeah. but it was huge. And it's part of the reason why I have a lot of apprehension about yeah, the company. Ridiculous. But she, Absolutely she ridiculous. certainly has turned it around. Rio, what's your view on Rio? Oh, look, you know, I think it's it's a fantastic result that Rio put through. You know, it is all about iron ore, let's be mm. honest. Some of the aluminium stuff, the diamonds, things like that really does pile in insignificance. The retail, uh, sorry, the iron ore side of it has been absolutely fantastic. I think they'll be a little bit light on the dividend. Uh, we never buy resource stocks for dividends, yeah. but I do think that, that dividend is going to be a little bit lower than potentially what the market's thinking of. I'm a little bit hesitant to be buying it up here at $100, $105. I just sort of get that feeling that it could potentially come back a little bit as well. And I think it's probably better trading at around the $90 level. Yeah. But look, all in all, it's been a fantastic result, fantastic business, and they're, they're literally going from strength to strength. Okay. Now, in your note, you say that strong growth outlook, and you've named A2 Milk and uh, Afterpay. Yeah. Are you saying that there's still buys at current levels, Adam, for the person who's prepared to wait a year or so to, to see the, you know, the, the share price keep on rising? Look, I, I think so. I think A2 Milk has got a fantastic balance sheet, fantastic management, and has really done very, very well through this COVID experience. So really, it's gone from strength to strength. And I think that shows resilience in a business where the weak ones will always fall off, the weak ones will always be di will disappear, it's the, the, the strong ones that will survive. Afterpay, again, has done a very, very, very good job of what they've done. And I do think that they will beat the numbers on their total transactional values. I think A2 Milk is a fantastic business, good balance sheet. So, yeah, I'm comfortable. I wouldn't be putting all my eggs in the one basket, but I'd certainly be chipping away here for a fantastic result, especially to the upside on A2M. I think that's, a, that's, that's definitely Okay. A now, under the heading of positive trading update, you've got Domino's. But Domino's haven't... Haven't reported yet, have they? But this no. is your anticipation that they will Correct. actually have a, a, a positive trading update. Yeah, look, you know, uh, the whole work from home, or in yeah. fact, being, uh, the whole, uh, you know, uh, lockdown, and then, you know, they've done a lot of advertising around contactless, uh, you know, get you delivered, no contact, all of those kinds of things. Look, I think they'll do very, very well. They, they've got a fantastic business model. Um, you know, you will see that uh, that del home delivery, you know, look at Marley Spoon, uh, Triple M is the stock code, that thing has just gone absolutely ridiculous. I really do think that that home delivery section and Domino's certainly in the front seat, I think they will surprise the upside. I'll tell you one uh, unusual, well, I don't know if you call it economic indicator, but it is, apparently tailors are just run off their feet with people increasing their waist size on their suits because they're sitting at home eating things like Domino pizza. Well, it's probably right, isn't it? Is. it? We're all getting a little bit older and a little bit fatter. So uh, buy some resume. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's just, there, there are a lot of your positive ones. Uh, is there another company that you really have a good positive feel about that you'd like to mention before we look at the negatives? Yeah, look, I, I, I'm, I'm liking Amcor. Yeah. I, I think this one will do really, really well also. I mean, it's in packaging. It's the sort of upstream from the Woolworths or the Coles. You know, they, they need, I mean, as obviously packaging is, is a fantastic business and it's very defensive as well. So I really do see Amcor and even Aristocrat probably should do quite well on that uh, social gambling or that gambling side of things, not from the pokies. 
but from the other side of that online gambling that they've done very, very well on. So I'm looking for some positive results on those. Okay. As well. So under the heading of challenging fundamentals, you got Origin. Yeah. Well, yeah, you want me to talk about Origin? And you've got you... Cube and you've got yeah. Woodside. Yeah, we'll see. Origin and, uh, and Woodside in that oil and gas space. Uh, you know, Origin's got the retail side of things. I think uh, Origin's going to struggle with, you know, people potentially not being able to pay their bills. Yep. So that's the that's the first thing. And then Woodside in that oil and gas space, um, we're using less cars. Well, we're not, the airplanes aren't flying. Oil demand globally has slumped. And I think that's probably a good thing. And, you know, but I, I, I think that's going to be challenging results and we just need to be careful. Woodside's already had a big downgrade. Um, so, you know, it's probably well known to the market, but I just think there might be something coming out of that field for those. And, and Adam, is it, it can be a little bit tough, Adam, is it fair to say that if we thought the worst of the coronavirus was behind us and that, that, that the threats from second wave infections was really low, a company like Woodside be, would be a beneficiary because we would be out and doing stuff again, we would be flying. Is that the, the kind of thinking that you know, a novice to investing should be thinking about? 100% you'd be planning for the future yeah. and you'd be planning 12 months in advance and Woodside is a buy 12 months in advance. I just think this reporting season, yeah. this time around from the 1st of Jan to the 30th of June, this is where things are going to be a little bit tougher. Yeah. And I think Woodside is, is definitely going to struggle. Demand's not there. As soon as the planes start moving in the air, you watch the oil price back up to 50 yeah. 60 $80 a barrel and it'll be on again. So it's a really good time to be looking at Woodside and accumulating at these lower yes. levels. So that was the point I wanted to make out because some people often don't understand that when someone like you makes these sorts of comments, they aren't necessarily for the long-term trades, for the, more, the shorter term trade. But when it comes to the longer term, uh, WPL or Woodside is not a bad buy. Balance sheet's fantastic. Dividend will be there. And they've got a little bit of growth coming from Scarborough. But yeah, it's, it's, one, of our, it's one of my top picks in the oil and gas. Okay, okay let's just deal with a couple that were also in your negative areas but they're fantastic companies, namely Cochlear and CSL. Yeah, so I just think, well, Cochlear, I think, you know, has been, you know, that they've raised some capital. I think, you know, it, it's a very, very good business. I just think that they potentially might struggle for the cost of the implant that they put into the ear is not a discretionary spend. Kind of, oh, sorry, it is more discretionary, yeah. not staple. So it's going to be tough for them to, to, to keep that, uh, that level of, and it's not government supported in a lot of countries, so it has to, you have to have a fair bit of cash uh, to do that. So that one, for CSL, I think it's going to struggle for its collection depots. You know, in the US, you have to get blood and you go, go in and get paid for that. So their collection depots are going to be a little bit tougher, and so hence earnings. And there's going to be a bit of a drag on earnings. So for both those companies that are market darlings, and certainly when we when we see that potentially companies aren't going to report as well, they do get hit when they when they have a little bit more of a negative stand. But but so I'm just yeah, I'm just a little bit yeah. worried about that. But as as a long term play, oh, at what kind of, at what kind of price would you pile into CSL? Well, look, it held that 270 really nicely today, yeah. and that was a big big telltale sign uh, for it to continue doing well. 270. If it breaks 270, it's down to 250, and then 242, which is March 23 lows. So they're the kind of levels that you'd be looking for. But if it holds 270, I think it should do well here and head back up. 
300. If it gets to 250, mate, I'll even put your money in on, into CSL. That's a, that'd be a good price. Yeah, everybody heard that. <laughs> everybody heard that. Okay, mate. Adam Dawes, is there anything else you'd like to throw in before we wrap it up? Uh, look, you know, I think everyone needs to basically keep calm through this August period. As you know and I know as, as students of the market, this is going to be unprecedented yeah. times. So just, just be cautious. Don't follow the herd. Don't jump out when you see a bad result. Wait till the dust settles uh, and just keep a cool head because it is going to be a tough reporting season. But I think, uh, you know, sanity will prevail. Uh, and just, yeah, everybody keep calm because I think it's just, it's just going to be one of those toughest, tough That's ones. the very calm Adam Dawes, except when he's chasing his children around soccer fields. Thank you, <laughs> Thank you Adam. See you later. Take care. Welcome to the program, Elizabeth. Great to be with you, Peter. Uh, and I'm reading from your press release outstanding operating performance in Q4, contributing to record shipments to FY20, lower C1 costs and increased revenue realisation. You really are crowing about a great result. Well, it's a result of the whole team. So I'm so proud of the team, Peter. And it's you know, in the midst of what has been a pretty uh, you know, disrupted uh, calendar year, at least, we saw in that June quarter that our team really responded. We had to put in place a range of measures to deal with COVID-19, including extending our rosters from two weeks on, one week off, to four weeks on, two weeks off. And that was a huge ask of our team members. So the fact that they were able to deliver a record June quarter, which built on the success of the first nine months, mm. meant that we delivered a record year of shipments of 178.2 million tonnes. And the highest we'd shipped in the past in a financial year was 170.4. So a significant uplift in shipments. Okay, so, you know, Elizabeth, you know, I, I always try to represent the kind of shareholder who invests in a company like Fortescue. And, and I know my Switch report has never been negative on you guys. Um, well, since you've been around anyway. But here is, I think, in reading this press release, there's so many good things in here that have happened. Uh, but what is your most important KPI and how is that done in this uh, reporting season? Most important KPI for me, I don't even think of it as a performance indica indicator, but is, is safety, Peter. Yeah. Uh, you know, the safety of our workforce is our highest priority. And the fact that we've seen our lowest ever total recordable injury frequency rate down to 2.4, which was a 14% improvement on FY19, I think, again, during a period where we had that disruption, just goes to show that the team are sort of really focused on safety as our priority. So it's not about shipments at any cost. Mm -hmm. um, the safety of our workforce is number one, front and centre. So for me, that you know, we've got a goal of zero harm. So it's actually not about numbers. Yeah. You know, Two point four is a measure, but you know, our goal is zero harm. But of all of the uh, the records that we achieved in uh, FY twenty, certainly safety stands out for me. Okay. Well, you know, I'm going to have to ask you a follow up question. What's the second most important KPI <laughs> that you think that the market really takes? Yeah, you, you know whether the market's going to be good to you or bad to you. Which one is the, is the second most important KPI? 
Well, it's, it's, it's probably true. It's hard to choose between uh, shipments and our costs because yeah. clearly, um, you know, volume is one, one part of the equation, but because we are the lowest cost producer, we're generating very strong margins and those cash margins are, are quite phenomenal. And mm. so we saw $4.9 billion cash balance at the end of June. And during the quarter, we paid our interim dividend to our shareholders of 76 cents Australian cents, which was about 1.4 billion US dollars. So returns to shareholders are actually a function of how much do we ship, mm. at what cost, and really that's what drives those those very strong margins. Yeah, and what is the outlook for those then? Because um, you know, when you mm. do really well, can you keep on doing it? Well, we've we've guided to shipments in the range of 175 to 180 million tons for FY21. Mm. So the top end of that range would be a bit ahead of FY20. And our C1 costs, we've guarded a range of 13 to $13.50. And that does include some ongoing costs associated with uh, dealing with uh, COVID-19 around mm. cleaning and hygiene and some of our testing. So um, yes, we are still very focused on uh, on, on doing more. We've, we've really uh, sourced some records across not only shipments, but also processing rail uh, all of our integrated infrastructure, and we do, you know, we do own all of our assets through from mining, processing, getting it railed, and also onto a ship. So, the fact that we own that fully integrated um, supply chain means that we're actually able to get those efficiencies. So, we're very focused on optimizing our existing assets mm. and uh, and delivering on our guidance for FY21. Uh, your your re-arrival was very bullish on China. Um, do you agree? Well, we've certainly seen a very strong recovery in China and crude steel production in the first half of this calendar year is at nearly 500 million tonnes, so 499 million tonnes. That's a 1.4% increase on the first half of mm. calendar year 19 during a period where China had its own lockdown and a very tight lockdown. So even during that first six months when there were COVID lockdowns, we saw a strength in crude steel production. And our exposure to China is largely through iron ore and therefore steel production. So uh, we're continuing to see the underlying strength. We see continued investment in infrastructure, mm. the underlying strength of that Chinese economy. And uh, you know, for Australia, the month of June was a record for iron ore exports with, yeah. nearly, with 9.92 billion Australian dollars of exports to uh, largely to China. Mm. So it's really important to the Australian economy as well. Yeah. Look, I, I know uh, you've been in business for a long time and a lot of people don't know that for your punishment, you actually are an accountant, aren't you? A chartered accountant, if I remember rightly. <laughs> I am. You've, I you've, am. <laughs> you've thrown off that tag very effectively, but not there's anything wrong with that. But, um, but when you when you studied to become an accountant, I don't think you ever would have thought that you had to. I know at university when I was lecturing, I never ever lectured on on pandemics, but with a, a pandemic like this, means that. One of your rivals, Vale, clearly has issues because of the, the pandemic and it's had an implication on prices. So when you try to work out the future of your company, do you have to try and factor in you know, the course of the, of the pandemic in Brazil and its implication on, on Vale and therefore prices? 
Well, I think all those factors uh, are taken into account. And there is, Vale themselves in their guidance have indicated that they've already allowed for some additional um, COVID impacts. Mm. Uh, and I think one of the things that's probably less well understood is the difference between the operations in Brazil, where largely the workforce drive in, drive out, drive in every day, work their shift, drive home to their community. Mm. Australia for iron ore producers is quite different. We're a fly in, fly out. And generally it's two weeks on, one week off. Uh, we extended that during the uh, during the June quarter. So they're quite different operations in some respect. But getting back to that sort of supply and demand, the broader impact actually was in January 2019, when sadly uh, Vale suffered that terrible tailings dam failure. Um, and that really had a 90 million tonne impact on their supply. Mm. Uh, and really that hasn't been fully recovered. And I think COVID's been another um, impact as well. Yeah some weather impacts earlier in this calendar year. Mm. So there's been a range of factors that sort of go into the mix of, of supply disruption versus that strength we're seeing in demand. So obviously we stay close to the market and we understand what's happening. But I mean, underpinning all of that, we're seeing that growth in Chinese crude steel production. And even if China's crude steel production grew by between one and 2% a year, they would still need another 30 to 50 million tonnes of iron ore supply mm. every year. Um, so there's ongoing strength, there's ongoing demand, um, and there has been a scarcity of supply. Yeah. So, so therefore, the, the question I'm going to ask now is the same one I'm sure Josh Frydenberg has given you a call to see, see if it's the, is the case. Do you have confidence that the price of iron ore is going to you know, at least stay around current levels? Well, I've learnt never to predict the iron ore price, Peter. So. Uh, <laughs> I knew you'd um, say every, that. I knew you'd say every, that. Everything is indicating, whether it's uh, stockpiles in China, whether it's current shipping rates, everything is indicating that there, there is a strong ongoing conditions and importantly, strong ongoing demand for iron ore. Mm. For us, by staying focused on being the lowest cost producer, we're generating those strong margins regardless of where we are in the cycle. Mm. A few years back, there was, always, there was question marks over the calibre of your grade. What, what's what's the, the situation of that nowadays? Well, we've made some really fundamental changes to our product strategy, and I think that's part of the what we're seeing reflected in uh, the strength of our, um, uh, you know, of our performance, but also our share price. I think the market is recognising mm -hmm. that we have a clear strategy, and our strategy is to get to the position where the majority of our products are greater than 60% iron grade. We introduced West Pilbara Farms in December 2018, and that's a 60.1% FE grade product. And we've grown volumes of West Pilbara farms in FY20. We also have our Ironbridge project, which once delivered in 2022, will add 22 million tonnes of a 67 grade product. So we're on a, you know, we've got a, we've got two major projects currently in construction. They are growth projects and they will also enhance our overall grades. So we're, we're very different to a few years ago where we had three key products. We've added West Pilbara farms, we've added Fortescue Lump, and then we will add Ironbridge Magnetite as well. Yeah. So, so in terms of your diversification, you're saying that there's been substantial progress? There certainly has been substantial progress in our iron ore business. Not sure it's diversification in the true sense of the word, but certainly in terms of that overall grade strategy. And uh, magnetite is a different product to existing hematite operations. So that, that, that will be in addition to our overall um, iron ore product suite. Right. My colleague, uh, here on the Switzer um, Investing Program, Charlie Aiken, uh, has of often used the old rule of thumb that you don't invest in a mining company for dividends, but 
in recent years, the mining companies, uh, iron ore uh, mines in particular, have been great for dividends. Do you have confidence in the, the dividend you're paying that's going to be around for a year or two at least? Uh, look, I, I think that we've demonstrated that we've got a very disciplined capital allocation um, strategy. We had peak debt of $13 billion. We prioritised debt repayment and we repaid $9 billion of our debt. We've now got a balance sheet that is on investment grade terms and conditions. Um, so you know, we're very comfortable with the strength of our balance sheet. Uh, and now we've been delivering significant returns to our shareholders. Mm. Uh, and by, as I've sort of, I've, I'm kind of repeating myself about our low cost position, but mm. by being the lowest cost, we're actually generating very strong margins. And we have a policy to pay out between 50 to 80% of net profit after tax. Mm. Very good. One last question. You know, you, you mentioned COVID and how the, the, the team has responded really well to it. One thing I, I, I've noticed is that business owners, business managers um, have also learnt from this coronavirus um, threat and they're doing business differently. Like for example, I'm finding it easier to get great CEOs like you on my television program courtesy of Zoom. Once upon a time we had to sort of try and get a camera in there and all that sort of stuff. So we're all becoming adaptive and so I've got a better TV program because of the coronavirus challenge. What, it, what has Fortescue learnt from this experience that you'll take forward to actually be a plus for the company? Well, I think there are some measures around. I mean, we've even seen lower rates of flu and other, other um, illnesses during this winter season. So clearly some of the measures we've put in place as a broader community, but across our sites um, through the hygiene and other cleaning practices are all adding to the health and safety of our workforce and to productivity. So some of those measures, having that flexibility where people can also work from home, um, we are actually back in the office, hmm. um, but we have flexibility as well. We, we can, uh, you know, we've got enough floor space to have uh, appropriate physical distancing. So hmm. we're back in the office. Um, so it's that flexibility. I think, I think you're right. One of the other reasons we're probably able to get us on the, on the show is we're not traveling as much. Mm. So we're able to do more business. We're focused on the business and being in the business and present in the business um, rather than necessarily some of the other kind of travel related activities. And there's, there's a balance to that because at some point, you know, we want to visit our customers in China, for example. So, um, but I do think that some of that flexibility that we've, we've all learned, um, the ability to be part of the business, um, whether that's virtually or in person, and to actually really focus on the business, I think it's been a, a key learning as well. Elizabeth Gaines, thanks for joining us on the program. Great to be with you. Thanks, Peter. This episode was brought to you by WCM Investment Management, a California-based global equities manager with an outstanding long-term track record. This chart shows the significant outperformance of WCM's quality global growth strategy over the past one year, three years, five years, 10 years, and since its inception. Investors can access the strategy via the ASX with their choice of an exchange-traded managed fund, WCMQ, or a listed investment company, WQG. Well, you heard earlier that Adam Dawes thinks that afterpay is a buy, but my next guest, Paul Ricard from the Switzer Report, controversially saying it's a sell. But uh, Paul, 
How controversial are you being? Are you a man on your own or do you have a bit of support Look, out there? I, I'm not a man on my own, Peter. There's a huge divergence amongst analysts. You really see these type of numbers. So after trade at the moment is trading about $66. Uh, we've got two really uh, well-respected brokers. One, Morgan Stanley, says it's a buy. They've got a target price of $101. Huge. And uh, UBS still has a target price a recent target price of $26. So that's an you know, enormous difference. You don't get that sort of numbers. Uh, and I think this is part of what I describe as sort of, look, the, the, the buy now, pay later sector, they've done really well. You have mm. to give the guys at Afterpay a lot of credit, yeah. uh, particularly the way they approached the US market and really revolutionized how a lot of you know, younger people shop in Australia. But you know, I mean, it, the whole sector is just ain't worth what it's worth, I think. I think it's just way overvalued. Pat. Okay. So it, we've seen that CBA took, what, a 5% share in a Swedish company called Klarna? Yeah, so, so Klarna's about uh, three or four times the size of Afterpay in terms of Gee. it's got 84 million customers after, well, it's more than that, 84 million customers uh, globally versus Afterpay is about 10. Uh, it's revenue of $750 million versus Afterpay's revenue of $300 million. And it's growing at an even faster rate in the US than Afterpay is, about 330% compared to Afterpay's 320%. Hmm. CBA bought effectively, uh, you know, uh, almost 6% and has paid $300 million, which values Klarna uh, at about $8 billion, that's Australian dollars, hmm. versus Afterpay's current market cap of about $20 billion. So $20 billion. $20 billion. Dollar. So yeah. Afterpay in a market cap sense is, uh, is, all, is, is twice as big. But, uh, you know, Klarna's got uh, eight times the customers and, and making about two and a half times the revenue. So mm. I think the market's a little bit out here, Peter, and that's what brought it home to me. I mean, I'm not going out to say afterpays are sell because, uh, per se, but I just think when you get that sort of divergence with analysts uh, and you look at the CBA, you look at their investment in Klarna, and it's, it's privately owned still, but mm. it'll, it'll come to... Uh, it'll, it'll list at some stage. Mm. I just think we're just way ahead of ourselves in Afterpay. How important is the Australian market to Afterpay? Look, not that important. It isn't at the moment in terms of still generating revenue, Peter, but uh, you know, growth in Australia is, 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 uh, is slowed down, but you expect that. It, it's, the Afterpay story is really about the US market mm. and to a, a secondary extent the UK, but it's mainly about the US market. That's why people have paid the top dollars, why people like Tencent, have taken a 5% stake. So there's, there's been some good names coming mm. in. So don't get me wrong, I don't think Afterpay is going to turn around and vanish. Mm. You know, this, this company has done really well, but uh, at uh, $66.50, you know, well, I, I'd rather find something else. So you, you think the UBS value is too low and the um, Morgan Stanley one's too high. Where would you buy Afterpay? I'd probably be looking more back in the mid-30s to, mid to 40s. I mean, I think it's got to come back into range a little bit. I mean, yeah. it, it, it is a, I would say it is, it is a bit of a bubble. And uh, look, a lot of the institutions just got in. Afterpay did, did a capital raising um, a few, just at the start of July, raised $650 million at $66 a share. So the institutes are still getting into it. So that's yeah. one of the reasons why it's almost looks like it's got a bit of a flaw here. But I think when... Uh, I think there'll be markets will reassess at some stage, and I think if I was a holder, mm. this is where I'd be getting at. I'm not saying it's the top because speculative bubbles. It's really hard to say the top, but I I, I wouldn't be buying after pay or zip at, at, the, at these sort of prices. I'd be waiting. Okay. Now, while we've got Paul Rigaud in a very controversial mood, I, I mentioned earlier in the show, Paul, about some of the companies to look at uh, with reporting season, and I listed a whole lot of companies that are well-known companies with potentially, you know. 15 to 19 to even 30% yep. gains. But I said there's a second group 
which are much more vulnerable with really big games like Webjet, for example, 43.8% analysts in FN Arena think, and uh, corporate travel, 67%. Do you worry these companies might have trouble surviving? Yeah, I, I do, Peter. I mean, controversial. Uh, I, I, I'm not. I don't want to, yeah, put the mocker over any mm. of them. But I am worried about that whole travel sector. I'm not worried about Qantas. There's always going to be airlines that mm. think at some stage. So look, Qantas might do it really tough, but but uh, I, I'm not worried about it. But I am worried about the. I would describe as the travel agents and the and the bigger brothers in terms of the web jets or corporate travel. You can might also argue flight centre. This whole thing could last some years, mm. and over the last years, it's going to be really hard for these companies to survive. Mm. So, you know, they basically rely upon international travel. They rely upon us wanting to go there and get their help, or corporates to make it easier mm. for. Uh, you know, a lot of their business does come from corporates, but none of us is flying. And if if, the, if this thing stays dead locked down for 12, 18, 24 months. I don't know how long they can survive for. So I'm worried about those. I think buying them for a dip, mm. uh, for a rebound, you've got to be a brave, uh, a brave investor. Or be willing to wait a long time. Yeah. But the bravery aspect is you do think these companies could be vulnerable uh, if they're not bringing revenue in for a long, long time. Well, I mean, you can only pay the bills for so much. There's only so much capital you can raise. You do need revenue. There's only so much job keeper to go around. I yeah. mean, uh, so I, I do worry about these companies. And um, what about Star Group? Uh, Star yeah, Star I'm less worried about Star. I mean, look, I think the the uh, the assets here in, Sid in the Sydney and, and in Queensland. Look, mm. domestic tourism can can fill part of this. Mm. Uh, look, I, I'm not as worried about that company. I know you've also got Nine Entertainment up there. Pete. Yeah. I thought that was an interesting one. I'm not as worried about that as, uh, mm. as perhaps as you. That's why I threw. Now I threw them in because it's a big number, and that make, makes you think as though it's risky. But I, I think Nine's diversifying quite effectively. But they do have a lot of challenges out there with the the, um, the pay TV rivals. But I thought it was interesting, and, that, and I'm basically saying to everyone, watch it. Let's just see what the CEOs say in the Outlook statements because that's going to be really important. I, I think there's a bit of an ego factor that goes into things like television and, and uh, when I mean an ego factor, there's, a, there's always a buyer. There's mm. somebody who will want to have influence over the news or mm. own the best quality papers, a bit like Jeff Bezos on the Washington Post. Yeah. There's a value of these assets. They're not able to make any money out of them, <laughs> <laughs> but there's some type of value. So I, I'm much less worried about that as, as surviving than perhaps uh, mm. you know, a, a company that's a service business and really relies upon you or I and, and corporate Australia, whatever it is, you know, to using their services to find a better deal, a better way to do something. Yeah. So uh, I think you ought to be a little bit careful because we're an unknown territory. And, uh, you know, someone said maybe this, the first time we saw the virus was actually just, this is the, really the wave, that was just the warm-up. Let's hope not. Yeah. But uh, I think we've got to be just a little bit careful uh, and you're going to want to be, you know, put these in your speculative part. These aren't core stocks no. uh, in, in, my, in my eyes at the moment. No, exactly right. And if you want to read more, the Switzer Report, both Paul's story on Afterpay and my story on those companies you know, promising big returns are in the Switzer Report. And you can check that out at switzerreport.com.au. And that's the show for tonight. Just before I go, I did mention earlier that there were X free days uh, trials for the Switzer Report. My uh, sidekick here, Andre Chan, has checked it up. It's 21 days free trial for the Switzer Report. So go to switchreport.com.au. You can see the story um, from Paul on Afterpay and mine on those companies that look like they've got really big upside, but it might take some time before it actually happens. Thanks for joining us. See you next week.